Shelley Schlender with MeAndMyDiabetes.com. Up next, we talk with medical doctor Ron Rosedale about how to figure out what are the right questions to ask in order to choose a diet and lifestyle that may do the best to promote a long and healthy life. Much of what we talk about today will focus on whether or not eating a diet that promotes thermogenesis is really a healthy diet. As background, many experts promote a diet high in protein because protein produces more heat in the body and fewer calories. So advocates of high-protein diets say that you can eat more protein without gaining weight, and they say that's a good thing. Many prescription drugs and supplements do that as well. They make the body burn hotter so a person can eat more without gaining weight. We'll talk about whether or not that is healthy, and also what questions might be the best ones to ask to promote health. Here's Ron Rosedale. Without asking that question, you're never going to get an appropriate answer. The questions themselves become all important. For instance, on my last blog on the safe starch you know, debate, if you want to call it that, I posed four questions <laughs> that really, to me, summarizes what the debate is about and then answered them. But the key was getting the, the questions right. People keep asking the wrong questions, and so they keep getting the wrong answers. That's a major key. Well, you know, I'm thinking right now about some of the debates and discussions about metabolism and what's the point of us to have a metabolism that's either high or low because in a recent discussion of the Harvard study about different kinds of eating, many people were thrilled with the fact that on a very low-carbohydrate diet or a somewhat lower-carbohydrate diet, people tended to have higher metabolisms. And the most common reason that it was said that that was a good thing is that that means that these people can eat more without gaining weight. Is, does that make sense to you? Is that, is that somebody asking the right question? No, no, no. The rate of metabolism isn't what we should be seeking. So we shouldn't be asking the question, how do I get a higher metabolism? We should be asking the question, how do I improve the quality of my metabolism? Which is a very different story. Uh, anybody can have a higher metabolism, and for the most part, that will actually increase the rate of aging. You're just going to increase the rate of whatever metabolism you've got going, good or bad. And so if you've got less than optimal metabolism and you just increase the rate of it, you're just going to increase the damage that it's doing, and that's what you see in many, many people. One of the major issues that one sees in the so-called safe starch debate, whether eating starch is a good thing or not. They keep saying that when you don't eat starches, your thyroid goes down and that is indicative of hypothyroidism. And that's just such a wrong way of looking at it. Certainly, when you eat a very low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet, your thyroid goes down, but your TSH does not go up. It's not because your thyroid is sick any more than your pancreas is sick when your insulin goes down on a very low-carbohydrate diet, it's indicative of more proper signaling. Thyroid is going down precisely because it can, and not only can, it's a healthy endeavor to reduce you know, your metabolism somewhat if it's able to function at a higher quality level. In other words, you get more bang for each energy buck, so to speak. And that's what 
is happening, for instance, in calorie-restricted animals when you see a lower free T3, and also in centenarians uh, when you see a lower free T3. It's really indicative of kind of a longevity phenotype. It's indicative of, you might even say, non-hibernating hibernation. Insofar as you're able to function better, you're not weak. You actually have more energy. It's like being able to turn down the idle of a car when it's tuned properly so that at rest, it doesn't have to waste as much energy. But if you want to use it, if you want to accelerate, it will actually accelerate faster. And the engine itself certainly will have a much longer lifespan. It's functioning better. Well, I suppose that if we wanted to have as low a metabolism as possible, we could just take a car and keep it in the garage all the time and just never have it out running at all. Uh, that's true. That is true. One would have to then get into the depths of a discussion on what is life. Is then the car really being a car? <laughs> you know, if it's really not doing anything, is it being any more than a rock? If it's really not functioning at all, that gets into more of a philosophical argument and actually a scientific argument, but that's probably a story for another day. Well, that's a story for another day, but this issue of where does somebody tell if their metabolism is at the right spot? There have been arguments for years that protein, for instance, is a great food because when you eat protein, it burns with more heat. Since it burns with more heat, it means that you can eat more of it and not gain as much weight. Does that make sense to you? It makes sense, but again, it's the wrong question. It's not whether we gain or lose weight. It's the kind of weight, number one. I don't think anybody really wants to lose their muscle or their brain or their bones. They want extraneous adipose, you know, belly fat to be lost, typically. It's not whether heat is produced, but really you know, where it's going. You want to get rid of heat, number one. You have to get rid of it quickly. Heat destroys. Now, heat is a double-edged sword. It's, you know, part and parcel of any energy exchange, but certainly excess heat uh, destroys. Even today, there are very well-respected people who will say that it's good news that eating protein causes thermogenesis, meaning it increases heat because that means that you can eat more food. And everybody knows that the plague of modern society is that people have trouble eating as much as they want and keeping their weight down. I've heard it from people who are otherwise very wise in how they're trying to look at these things. And it's time for them to stop saying that. That is. So I, you know, that's why with anything, whether it's a car or a person, simply Taking something in to increase the heat isn't putting that energy to a useful purpose. And that may not be such a good thing. Yeah. It isn't. Producing heat can contribute to a whole lot of damage. Is it okay with an athlete when they are sweating and lifting weights or running fast that they get hotter? Is that okay? That's part of their training is to adapt to getting rid of heat fast. In other words, as they adapt to training, they will sweat more than they did when they began training. They'll have better circulation to get rid of heat. Certainly part of the training and part of what will adapt them to being a better athlete is adapting to uh, excreting heat.
And so when you see an argument about metabolism where the celebration is that somebody who eats a very low-carb diet can have their metabolism stay the same whether they're losing weight or maintaining their weight, and there's a celebration because that person can then eat more than somebody who is on a higher carb diet. Is that what you celebrate about it too? No, not at all. I think what you're referring to then is the rate of metabolism. Their metabolism isn't necessarily increasing. They have the, the rate of metabolism might, but what's happening on a very low carbohydrate diet they're improving the quality of their metabolism such they're able to burn fat properly and more importantly ultimately enable better leptin and insulin signaling that will more appropriately then uh, apportion which fuel to burn when in other words uh, when to burn fat and when not to uh, for most people it would be when to burn fat most people are not able to burn fat as readily as they need to or would want to the reason for that is because of inaccurate leptin signaling and even insulin signaling, uh, widely known as leptin, leptin and insulin resistance. And so there's those issues where you think that if somebody switches to eating fewer carbohydrates and they just feel totally wiped out, you're wondering whether that person is not quite in fat-burning mode yet. Correct. They're not. I think that for most of the people, and I've questioned a number of people including at the last AHS conference at Harvard, who mentioned that felt poorly when they went on a very low-carbohydrate diet. But when you question them properly, they were not eating the appropriate amount of protein. They were eating way too much protein, two, three, four times as much protein as I normally recommend. People have within themselves so much that fat is a bad thing to eat. Unconsciously, they avoid it. And the only thing that you can eat if you don't eat fat and you don't eat carbohydrates is protein. So people automatically, when they go on a very low-carbohydrate diet, unless they consciously think about it all the time, they will go on a high-protein diet. So I think the majority of reason that people feel poorly when they go on a very low-carb diet, if they do, not everybody does certainly, I think most people don't, but some do, is that they haven't given it a long enough time to get through the adaptation and sometimes they'll never get through that adaptation because they're eating too much protein and sometimes even too much carbohydrate. It will prevent you from actually getting through that adaptation. So they lower their carbohydrate some, but not enough to really start burning fat. It only takes perhaps 100 grams of carbohydrate a day to prevent a person from properly going into ketosis. Uh, therefore, supplying the necessary fuel for many different body functions that can't burn fatty acids, such as the brain. So if you're not generating ketones because you're eating too many carbohydrates, then certainly initially you're going to have a difficult time and you're not going to feel too well. I do wonder whether some people, because of the way that the cortisol works in their bodies, or say a type 1 diabetic who gives themselves shots of insulin and also shots of sugar to balance out the insulin. I wonder if there are a number of different ways that people's bodies can end up having higher hits of sugar than they realize in their blood sugar and that this means that they never get to the point where their body's resilient about adapting to just burning fat. I totally agree. What you really have to do is you have to maintain this long enough to kind of turn down the glucostat, you know, like the thermostat only with glucose, so that 
uh, the glucose goes down because you don't need it so much. You're just now keeping a minimal amount available for anaerobic emergencies, but not because you have to burn it all the time because you're unable to burn fat, which is what the vast majority of people on Earth do, uh, meaning that they, they have too much sugar, they crave sugar all the time because they're unable to properly burn fat. And I think it really is the base cause of the mass amounts of chronic diseases of premature aging that people are experiencing that shouldn't be happening if they would be adopting a diet like we've talked about before, just a very low sugar-forming carbohydrate intake along with appropriate protein but not high protein, and then uh, fill in the appetite gaps really by uh, eating fat when necessary. You base that argument a lot on the simplicity of saying, if you look at what generates the most heat and what generates the least amount of heat, then that gives you a good strong predictor of what is going to lead to the least wear and tear in the body. <laughs> it's as simple as that. It is as simple as that. It sure darn is. <laughs> I don't know if you read my last blog post on safe starches. Um, it would be good to read, not just to read what I had written. This was post-Boston conference, kind of in response to what other people have written, where I said, like at the very beginning of this discussion, I posed four questions and then answered them. In some of the, some of the comments and then, or tweets, I don't even know if it was tweets or comments on the Facebook site, where people are bringing forth the correct biochemistry that you get many more ATP molecules from an equivalent gram amount of fat than you do from glucose. It was in reply to my, or in comment to agree with me when I just made a simple comment that fat is by far the most preferable fuel to burn. Uh, so that has been noted for a long time. I mean, it's nothing new. It's taken right out of biochemistry textbooks. Eating fat is the preferable fuel. For creatures that are adapted to eating fat. Right. Well, for longevity. As an example, I don't think that you could feed a hummingbird fat. I don't think. I think you probably could, actually. And perhaps it would live longer. I wouldn't say it would live necessarily better. And it wouldn't necessarily be ideal to perpetuate its genome. I'm sure it probably wouldn't. Nature is not concerning itself with total longevity. Concerns about the longevity of the genome not about the temporary caretakers of that genome, the soma, at least any more than allowing the genome to get to the next generation and stand on its own two feet. What's natural is not necessarily what's healthiest. As far as our view of healthy, meaning a long, healthy, including post-reproductive life, healthy life. Nature generally, I don't think ever really, cares much about post-reproductive health and longevity other than as it pertains to parenting and perhaps grandparenting the genome so that it can essentially fend for itself. So, for instance, Paul Jaminet gave an argument because I brought this up at AHS and he gave an argument that he does believe that nature selects for longevity and, and gave as an example humans living much longer, for instance, than chimpanzees without really understanding that the reason is because our children, our infants, are helpless. 
when they're born and takes a long time for them to have a reasonable chance of survival. And so nature has endowed parents and even grandparents with a long enough lifespan to enable the children to be able to grow old enough such that they can take care of themselves. And that takes many, many more years than it would an infant chimpanzee. And that's why humans live longer than chimpanzees. But there's not even a means for nature, really, to pass on traits of post-reproductive longevity. We have to get away from constantly thinking that what's natural is what's best. And of course, much of the paleo movement, if you want to call it that, is, is based on such a thing. Do what's natural, eat what's natural, you know, as if we even know. And there's a big argument of what eating natural is even like. But what I've said in these types of meetings is it's irrelevant. You can't use that anyway. All you can do is use the best science that tells you how nature allowed a human or life to live a long pre-productive lifespan, find out what those secrets are, and then apply them post-reproductively. Nature has endowed virtually all animal life with a means of outliving a famine so that it could then reproduce at a future more opportune time and therefore has chemical sensors, hormonal pathways that tell the the genes and the genome, what the nutrient availability is. And when it senses a low nutrient availability, it upregulates maintenance and repair uh, genetic pathways that then increase, for instance, DNA repair and intracellular antioxidant systems and heat shock proteins and uh, what's called autophagy, which kind of cleans up the garbage faster and better. Um, and just like that, you did some autophagy this right there and cleared out some extra music there. Yeah, <laughs> true. Cleared up excess noise. But I would add to that that here is a place where in these discussions and these understandings, one can take what you just said about gearing up to survive a famine to assume that humans are doomed to always have something in them that's getting ready to survive a famine. And so we humans have to eat and eat and eat because we're programmed to deal with famines. And I don't think that's what you're saying. It's, it's very different from that. The major uh, secret, if you want to call it that, that we can use to our advantage is that it appears that these pathways and this signal is extremely ancient. It must have arisen shortly after life began itself, even with single cell organisms in the oceans, which means it occurred before there was oxygen in the atmosphere. And life was flourishing for millions and even billions of years before there was enough oxygen in the atmosphere that we were allowed to even use fat as fuel because you have to have oxygen to be able to burn fat. You don't need oxygen to burn glucose. And therefore, these signals are dependent on two major nutrients 
glucose and protein, certain amino acids, but not fat. And that's a real key. In other words, if you keep your glucose intake low, such that insulin signaling and leptin signaling stay down, and yes, leptin is, uh, the secretion of leptin is largely dependent on how much glucose a person ate, more than fat even. And that's something that everybody just argues about, but it's very, very clear in the literature. And then if you don't eat excess protein, such that you don't raise a pathway known as mammalian target of rapamycin, which senses amino acid and protein availability, you keep those low, that it then mimics calorie restriction, but you don't have to calorie restrict because you can eat fat. It's kind of a free ride. It doesn't get you, uh, it doesn't get the body into believing that you've got nutrient excess. And at the same time, it could be that since fat is causing less uh, heat damage in terms of how it's stored and how it's metabolized, I think about some of the animals that have unusual styles of how they do things. A lot of them have different fuel intakes, but they have a great deal of resiliency to shifting very quickly to fat burning. Yeah. Hummingbirds, even if they take in a lot of sugars, even if they're drinking basically soda water, these animals are much more resilient than our bodies tend to be at switching that and converting it very quickly into a fat as opposed to a sugar going through their systems. Or if they have sugar going through their systems, they've got all kinds of backup mechanisms to kind of hold that in check while it's being burned. That's exactly true. So one can look at fat as being a much cleaner burning fuel than sugar, which it is, and does cause less damage than if you were to burn sugar as your everyday fuel. Right now, in this day and age, sugar should not be burned very much at all. It should be reserved for anaerobic emergencies, so that if we have to sprint away from a lion, we can't breathe fast enough to supply enough oxygen to generate enough ATP from fat, that we have glucose that we can burn very quickly and generate ATP without needing very much oxygen very quickly. And that's why we have glucose, but it causes more longer-term damage. So it's not something that you want to be burning all of the time, but people around the world are being forced to burn it all the time because they can't burn fat properly. And the reason they can't burn fat properly is because the signals that tell you whether to burn fat or glucose, namely leptin and insulin, have been so corrupted over time because of their diet that they can't properly fuel partition. They can't switch over between fat and sugar properly. So when you look at animal examples that you gave, nature isn't really caring if they live a long life. Nature is just trying to get them to live long enough to be able to reproduce. But they continue to have proper uh, fuel partitioning, like you mentioned. They can, they can burn fat uh, where and when appropriate. So even though they might store fat in their liver, they can then get it out of their liver very easily and readily. The problem with leptin resistance, however, is that you can't do that then. And then you store a lot of abdominal fat, but you're not able to access it properly. So it continues to build and then infringe on a vital organ system, such as liver function and heart function, et cetera. So that is the main problem, and that might take a long time to develop. So we know that certain molecular processes like advanced glycated end products uh, take a while to accumulate. 
And it could be that some of these animals just don't live long enough to be able to accumulate these to any great degree such that they uh, impair their insulin and leptin signaling. So we know, for instance, that humans live a fairly healthy life through childhood, although now we're starting to get even so-called adult onset diabetes in the young. But for the most part, children are much healthier than adults, and they do eat lots of junk food, but they don't accumulate the diabetes and obesity and heart disease generally until later in life. And the reason for that is because the body can make proper compensations for eating poorly, can burn it off faster, uh, et cetera. They can increase thermogenesis, not necessarily healthy, but they don't notice it at the moment. But what it does is it starts corrupting the leptin and insulin signaling such that later in life then they can no longer make the appropriate compensations for eating poorly. Then they get diseases that we currently call diseases. You know, all of a sudden their, their sugars go up and so we call it diabetes. So if we started measuring insulin and leptin resistance or sensitivity early in life, you'd find that there was a progression almost from the moment they were born, in fact, even before they were born, depending on what their mothers ate. I would suppose then that some people are more fortunate and their bodies are more resilient at dealing with the hit of transitioning back and forth between fat burning and sugar burning rapidly and often and stay flexible and quick in doing that. And athletes sometimes, by the athleticism they have, if it doesn't damage their body, it keeps it strong. And so they too might have a better resiliency and less of a hit from the friction of fuel sources that cause more heat and burning. Uh, that's exactly true. And looking at those animals, it struck me that like the python that eats uh, one big meal once every few months and then gets all of the symptoms that you would get if you were somebody on the verge of a heart attack, you know, high triglycerides, huge amounts of cholesterol in the system, probably huge amounts of inflammatory markers, I'll bet you, and all of the stuff, but it only happens for a few days. And then it shifts back down into a fasting state for months. And a hibernating bear will get itself very fat before the fall. And then it will, well, it doesn't really hibernate, but it, when, it's, when it's resting through the winter, it's basically living off of its fat stores. It's burning fat, yeah. And the hummingbirds, the fact that they every day, by the end of the day, have a hugely fatty liver. But by morning, they don't have much fat in their liver at all. Because they burned it. They, they burned it, and that meant that they were on fat-burning mode right. all through the night. All right. So all of these animals, uh, even though they might have been eating sugar, have been burning fat. They turned the sugar into fat and then actually subsisted on the fat, and the pythons and the bears are intermittently fasting, which have shown to be of quite benefit, not the least reason of which is that they burn fat when they're fasting. And the statement that I made decades ago now, actually, I think still holds true. Nobody's been able to properly refute it at all. And that is that if you take everything that there is to know about uh, diet and health and longevity, you come up with the statement that one's health and longevity is going to be dependent on the proportion of fat and sugar that they burn over a lifetime. The more fat you burn, the healthier you'll be, and the more sugar you burn, the less healthy you'll be, uh, provided you don't get hit by a Mack truck. I'm Shelley Schlender. 
You can find more discussions with Ron Rosedale and with other experts at meandmydiabetes.com. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Walt Schlender for the music. <music>